hello and welcome to this uh, third in this series of events where we are discussing some of the vital questions affecting the construction industry. And today we are looking at the issue which I think is most important of all. Uh, we're looking at climate change and what the industry can and must do to address it. Obviously, the construction industry has an enormous impact on the climate and we need to look at how we can change things, whether regulations are working, what we do or don't understand about um, embodied carbon, uh, the work in particular, the work that specifiers and manufacturers can do to drive change. Uh, we look at the uh, impact of COP26 and how we are dealing with that uh, as we are in the run up now to COP27. So rightly, this is moving even if it's not moving fast enough. Uh, we're very fortunate to have a fantastic lineup of speakers. You can see them across the bottom of your screen and they will include uh, Nitesh Magdani, who's a strategic sustainable business advisor, uh, Will Arnold, who is head of climate action at the Institution of Structural Engineers, and Gemma Eisen, who is sustainability manager at Keystone Group. But before I introduce our first speaker, I would just like to tell you, remind you if you've been here before, uh, that we do have uh, an opportunity for a lively, I'm sure, discussion at the end. And um, that discussion will be made all the richer with your questions. So as they occur to you, please, because we all know how you can forget a question, um, do please type them into the uh, question function on the right of your screen. and. Um, we will address as many of them as we can at the end. But now, without further ado, uh, I'm going to introduce our first speaker, um, who is really um, expert on climate and climate-related issues, been recognised as one of the UK's top 100 sustainable design visionaries. And he is Dr Oliver Jones, who is Research Director at Rider Architecture. Oliver. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invite. Um, I think it's probably good to, to just set the scene for a little while. Um, I won't be giving you a, a presentation for slides and images, more a conversation around what some of the key issues are and, and addressing the topic of the conversation. You know, are we doing enough to tackle climate change? I think it was interesting that you touched on the COP um, the outcomes from COP26. Um, honestly, in all honesty, not sure, other than reiterating the, the state of the nation and the problem, I'm not sure that much of our progress has been driven by the outcome of COP26, but that might be something that's controversial and the rest of the panel can, can respond to. Um, I'm really fortunate in my role in that we work an awful lot with um, sustain, advanced sustainable material startups and people who are really at the, in the trenches, really trying to tackle climate change with regards to reducing the embodied energy in and embodied carbon within uh, materials. So for me on a day-to-day -day basis, there is a, a palpable frustration in the fact that the, the technology is there. You know, I wouldn't want to be sort of agreeing with Boris in many ways, but when he said that technology might be uh, coming to the rescue from our perspective in terms of the role that it's playing in material science, it, it absolutely is, you know, and, and this is a, a call to action that's gone out well beyond the construction industry. Most of the people we're engaging with on a research basis and 
all of our research is, is, is evidenced through pilot projects and demonstrators so it's actually applied and that we're actually acting on the uh, the emergency but the technology is there we've got low carbon concrete from handfuls of suppliers who are now coming to the fore they're all from chemists and biochemists and physicists and people who are outside of our industry and i think one of the key things here is around collaboration and around our behaviors as an industry we need to begin to engage more with people outside of the industry for a long time we've had many conversations with one another um, particularly in architecture you know it's, it's incredibly self-referential as a, as a as a profession and i think now we're seeing the level of frustration in these young incredibly intelligent entrepreneurial chemists biochemists physicists marine biologists who are now coming to the fore coming into construction and saying look we've got a product here that is that is totally going to change the way you guys do things and that exists on a spectrum so for me the, the innovations in construction exist around um the reuse of waste material. So we're seeing a lot of companies come to the fore now who are incorporating an awful lot of waste material into their products um, to either become carbon neutral or carbon negative. And that goes for concrete blocks. It goes for fire safe insulation. That's that's much better thermally performing. And those things are really comfortable in terms of behaviors for the industry because we're kind of swapping out one thing we know for something that looks the same and feels the same. But if we're going to make the moves that we need to make to really accelerate ourselves towards achieving those 2050 goals, then we have to get a bit more comfortable with being uncomfortable or doing new things. And that's the challenge for me in terms of behaviors and collaboration in the industry. The, and, and a good example of this is the work that we're doing around the biotech space. You know, so we're, we're working with companies who are growing uh, bricks and panels and blocks using mycelium, which is a, a mushroom prefungus incredible um, structural properties, acoustic properties, thermal properties, fire properties, but it's new. It's something that we're not entirely familiar with as an industry. It also massively supports uh, the move, the wholesale move to a circular economy. So there's, there's, there's umpteen benefits in moving towards this bio-based economy and moving towards bio-based materials. We're doing the same by revisiting an old friend in, in the form of hempcrete and, and how we use hemp in construction um, and, and and this is also having untold benefits on building quality building environment quality internal quality um, which has been a huge issue up until uh, well still is re at the moment in terms of housing um, poor housing quality so at the very far end of that spectrum is this sort of biotech space and we're not very comfortable as an industry in engaging with it at the moment the one that really sets people on fire and it gets me particularly excited is the world of marine biology and what that what what that's doing for us at the moment we're working with a, a hub called the deep green biotech hub in sydney and and these guys are using um bioreactors they've already developed already in place to clean the air um externally in our environments we're working on a big project with them to hook these bioreactors up to mechanical heat and ventilation systems in buildings that will clean all of your air take all the volatile organic compounds out of the air and it also enables algae to grow this algae is then harvested and it becomes a high value biomass that you can create bioplastics biofuel the problem that we're hitting time and time again and the source of my extreme frustration at times 
is that because it disrupts existing global markets, such as the energy market and the oil market, these products are incredibly hard to scale without backing from industry partners, without the, without the demand in place. And they're incredibly hard to scale in the fact that we've already used, we've already developed a biofuel um, through these labs that another accelerator company has put into a plane and flown a plane. So we have aviation-grade biofuel. It exists. You know, we have the technology to do all these things, but they are not, they're not currently scalable because big oil and big energy just won't get behind them. Um, at the minute, it's too disruptive. So we're in a situation where it really rests on us as an industry, and I think to, to take leadership. Um, so we're doing enough to tackle climate change in terms of the things that are being developed, but in terms of adjusting our own behaviors and adjusting our own expectations, there's an awful lot more that we could be doing, in my opinion. Um, we need to double down on skills, on skills development. There's an awful lot of skills that we're lacking in, in our industry. We, were, we had a skills shortage anyway, and now we're moving into a whole new era of material science, of methods of construction. And we don't, we fundamentally don't have the skills to address these. And that'll start to affect our bottom line, which tends to turn everybody's heads when we're having trouble retaining staff, when we're losing staff because the, the salaries are going through the roof because there's so few people that can do these jobs. So we need to make sure that we're reinforcing that pipeline of, of skilled professionals that are coming through and that we're educating people in the right way um, to be able to take us to the next level in terms of the climate emergency. So there's, there's a number of things here. I think that we're okay on the technology. I think we're there globally. I think there's a lot of fantastic innovations going on that we're currently using and, and, and piloting and trying to integrate. The bit where we're really struggling, and, and it's no surprise from construction, is behaviors and culture and how do we shake that up and then to underpin it all it's skills and education and i think just my sort of call to action is i feel like we've we don't need any manifestos there's only one manifesto um it's, it's, it's been reiterated a thousand times we know what we need to achieve we don't really need anybody making recommitments to pledging climate action that's done um, we've, we've had a call for change. We've had a call for action. You know, the thing that is really, I'm wondering where do we go from here? You know, is it a call for evolution? I, I'm not sure, but we need to be fundamentally changing our behaviors and, uh, and really working on a day daily basis at every level in our practice and our professions to do things differently from the way that we've done them before. Because that's what's going to, that's what's going to get us there. Um, if we rest too easy on the path of least resistance, and what's made us money in the past, we're we're, we're not going to uh, we're not going to achieve the, the, the Paris Agreement and the and the climate goals that we've set out for that. So my my sort of call to action, which hopefully we'll discuss a bit later, is is really let's focus on how do we individually make a difference on day to day. How do we question the things that we've done before within our roles? Um, how do we look for new ways of doing things? and take some risks because the risks of not acting in the short term have very long-term implications um, and how do we trial some of these not so new technologies these nature-based technologies these bio-based technologies like hempcrete which has been around for 20 years um, in in some of our construction methods and, and, and processes moving forward so I'll, I'll leave it there and I'll, I'll look forward to the conversation and, and diving into some questions um, as as we pick them up in the panel discussion Thank you so much. And I think there's there's so much to think about there. I mean, certainly when you start talking about um, 
marine-based materials, that becomes very exciting because while I completely take your point on hempcrete, I do begin to wonder how much of our uh, building materials we can afford to grow given we have pressure on land and the sort of arguments we're already having about, you know, whether we should be growing food or growing biomass. Um, but I think that's fascinating and I'm sure there's more to talk about as well in terms of regulation, in terms of people's confidence that um, buildings with fairly, with materials that are untested in the field, whether those will last or not. Uh, I think after all those planes did biofuel, they only had to fly once, didn't they? They didn't have to stand up for 30 years. I think there's a lot to think about. Uh, I will encourage everyone to send in their questions. Um, but now we're moving on to our second speaker, who is Nitesh Magdani, uh, who's also uh, an architect who's worked in practice, but he's come out of practice now uh, and set himself up as a strategic sustainable business advisor. Uh, he's uh, named his organization Net Positive Solutions. And I'm sure he'll tell us a bit more about that and certainly about his ideas for tackling some of these really vital issues. Nitesh. Great, thanks Ruth, um, and nice to be here. Uh, so let me just, there we go, so here are my slides. Um, and, and it's great to follow Oliver. Um, Oliver, you mentioned something, you know, product hemp, which is something dear to my heart. So I pioneered this nearly 20 years ago, as you said. So glad that it's still being used, but not widely enough. Um, because since since I used it in a couple of projects, uh, Adnams and MS Cheshire Oaks, it hasn't really taken off. And, and that's sort of really surprising that, and it sort of proves the point for me that the market hasn't moved on enough. And so whilst I get that, you know, Oliver, you're saying that the skills are there, we don't need to, you know, we just not, not to rest on our laurels, but, you know, we sort of need to move forward, but something's preventing us from moving forward. And, and I think the four of us, five of us that are on the screen, um, are probably here because we're doing stuff. But I think, you know, the majority of developers, clients, landlords, etc., cetera, that, um, that, that we're not working for generally are not doing enough. And I think that that's the issue for me. Um, and that's really what I wanted to get across. So let me just go into the presentation. This is a quote that, you know, I, I love. Um, and it sort of brings back the um, a report that was done in 2021 called the Descriptor Review, uh, which David Attenborough sort of edited a you know, part of. Um, and it just reminds us that global wealth, whether that's successful governments or businesses, currently bear little uh, correlation to the preservation of our natural capital, um, be it air, land, water, biodiversity, um, resources or climate impacts. So whilst we're talking about climate change, I think all too often we focus on carbon and, and actually we need to deal with the broader aspects of climate change as well. Um, but also the, the, the fact that we, we can't disconnect financial gain, financial capital with um, impacts that we're, we're having at the same time on natural capital or social capital at the same time. So I think that's a key point for me um and I, I know will's going to go into some of this so i wasn't going to dwell on it um but 
yes, we are coming up to COP26, 2027 even. Um, and from what I've read so far is that we're sort of really far off the mark in terms of um, hitting sort of the 1.5 degree temperature rise by 2050. And we're sort of sitting somewhere around the 2.4 to, to, to 3, 3 degrees, which is quite alarming. So we do need to get a move on. We do need to sort of really, you know, engage with not just the people that are converted, but maybe it's through legislation. Um, I don't think government are doing enough. Um, they may have made a statement to say that, you know, we're going to be net zero by 2050, but the mechanisms, the methodologies haven't really flowed through into industry. And whilst we may have the tools, we're not all pushing. Um, and, and again, there are there are a lot of um, both yeah, industry and um, public sector guidance on achieving global targets, but also targets specific to the built environment. You know, for, for, for 2030, for example, or 2050 to hit those targets. So, yes, you know, we, we do have a lot of the tools out there. We just need the incentive to sort of move forward. So, for example, we've talked about for, for years this operational gap, you know, the performance gap. Um, and, and, you know, again, you know, I, I've talked to various investors, uh, developers, etc., that are still measuring success by an EPC label, but it's clearly not fit for purpose. So we need to move beyond that to sort of understand how buildings are performing, um, but also understand that, let's say, yeah, I think 80%, I uh, can't remember the actual number, but about 80% of the buildings that we have today will be here in 2050. Um, so yes, we can focus on the new builds and, and you know, understand what we can do there. But clearly, you know, when, when you look at existing performance of existing buildings, um, and in order to hit that sort of sector decarbonisation uh, route map that we need to, to hit, um, we need to be upgrading those properties to risk uh, stranding, you know, where you know ultimately those existing properties are failing to meet the, the necessary um, performance requirements. So this is just a, a quick sort of overview of some of the the drivers for net zero. Uh, net, again, net zero is not the only thing we should be looking at, and a lot of clients do so, you know, that that use that as a buzzword at the moment. Um, and again, I think we just need to sort of put in place the whole picture. Um, but if you do focus on net zero, there are, there is enough out there to sort of say, you know, we need to be cutting our emissions by 90% or so, 95% even, if you look at science-based targets um, and not rely on offsetting. Okay, so um, I just wanted to give a couple of tangible examples um, on projects that I'm working on currently, so I can show shiny examples of circular economy in practice um, from, from my days at BAM. Um, but actually I thought, thought it would be more useful to share current practice in the UK where, um, you know, I, I'm sort of trying to bang the drum, trying to sort of promote um, the business case for sustainability, the business case to actually get on board and, and how to sort of work through procurement um, and, and sort of that board level to sort of persuade people to think differently. Um, and then so sort of turning more towards 
uh, embodied carbon. Um, how, how do we evaluate existing assets, existing buildings to, to try and retain that value, retain that carbon in place and lock it in? And there's been a lot of discussion, a lot of articles through the AJ and others um, really sort of um, lashing out at you know, developers that are sort of clearly missing the boat and wanting to sort of build a, a shiny new building um, and justify that through any means. So, you know, just a couple of examples of where we're trying to sort of justify retention, reuse, as opposed to, you know, sort of business as usual. Um, and then also, I think an important factor Oliver mentioned was engagement, collaboration, etc. This all doesn't happen because you just have the tools, but you've got to then push it out there and get those key messages out so that everyone starts to sort of change their mindset. So in terms of promoting sustainable um, or tangible strategies, um, working a lot um, with Enfield Council recently as their sort of circular economy advisor, um, consultant uh, on Meridian Water, we, we've sort of had the chance to work with a lot of different architects, a lot of different uh, project teams, construction teams, to essentially look at the role of existing buildings and donor projects or materials and recipient projects and how we can sort of match the two. So we're, we're sort of almost acting as a matchmaker. And, and part of that process um, has been, you know, literally preparing business cases to say, look, we're looking at social value, uh, social impact, we're looking at sustainability or environmental payback, but we're also looking at commercial viability as well. And as I said before, at the beginning with the Descubta re review, um, you can't look at one in isolation of the other. You know, so seeing the big picture, I think, has really helped us to push that agenda forward um, for Enfield Council to really understand that, you know, that the three are interlinked. Um, and it's really helped to sort of get to an outcome where we can we can say that, you know, the people making decisions are taking on board views across the board. So it's been quite an influential process. Um, but also looking at, and, and GLA have their own, you know, a lot of you know, the, the sort of British standard on circular economy, which we've been working on, but also the GLA have come out with their own sort of waste hierarchy. And we've developed this for um, Meridian Water, again, um, as a project, and, and really looking at that methodology to, you know, assess um, or, or put in place a, a value retention target uh, for existing buildings, so donor projects on the left-hand side versus recipient construction projects on the right-hand side. And we're sort of match, we're trying to match the two so that, you know, we're really looking at the value. If we do have a project that's being demolished, uh, we're trying to salvage materials. And, and obviously that's a last resort that, you know, we're demolishing buildings at all, um, but sometimes it does happen. So if, if that's the case, um, we're trying to divert materials from just being scrapped, being sort of sent to landfill um, and, and actually trying to reuse them on site in, in some way. So we've, we've had a few successes. Um, with pre-redevelopment or pre-demolition audits, again, London are sort of pushing um, that agenda forward. And I think that for me anyway, as a sort of circular economy or sustainability advisor, that's been quite influential because we've seen developers sort of say, look, 
we need to do this. You know, we need to, or clients actually starting to come around to the idea that, yes, we're doing it to tick the box, but actually it's starting to change perception. So, you know, we've we've done various things. I mean, this is, this is an example from Enfield again, um, where we sort of did various um, surveys on buildings and we start to evaluate sort of impact, whether it's monetary impact or carbon or just, you know, wanting to do the right thing um, to try and preserve materials in place, ideally, or reuse them on a nearby project. Um, and it just gives you that sort of... Um, clarity of thought as to, you know, where should we focus our mind on? You know, what, what do we focus on retaining um, and reusing? And how do we get that designed in to, you know, future schemes? So an example of, you know, one of the projects um, that we're, we're looking at, um, this is just a sort of example really um, to showcase the type of, you know, resource passport that we're putting together with embodied carbon, you know, clearly one of the key metrics that, we're using um, to, to evaluate those decisions. And then, you know, really pushing that through to, you know, say, well, you know, you, you should maximize retention um, in situ um, to, to sort of maintain those original features. Um, there are other options that we can look at if that's not viable, but clearly that's sort of the, the best option in terms of, you know, a retention of value and also CO2. Um, and again, you know, putting putting across these different options for different materials that are within within scope. And then lastly, just wanted to show that, you know, doing all of that and, and sort of avoiding that tick box potential um, is really important. And, and that can only happen if you engage with those stakeholders, you know, whether they're project team members, con contractors, um, or wider stakeholder engagement to make that happen. So again, on um, some of our projects, we've started having um, workshops, you know, with with designers, contractors, clients, etc., to try and match, you know, where the need is in terms of donor projects, you know, materials becoming available, um, and then how do we sort of certify those through a sort of material bank, uh, whether that's a physical reuse hub or a virtual one, and then where are the projects that actually need those types of materials and how can we avoid them buying it off the shelf when we have them available so you know currently i'll show you in a second we have eighteen thousand bricks that have just become available um, and we've had a few inquiries but not nearly enough and it's because i think um designers like the idea of using things and i as an architect have tried to reuse things in the past and you know, have sort of faced a, a brick wall because, you know, the engineer has said, well, yeah, I, I don't, I, I don't want to, it's my PI that, that's at, at stake. You know, if we use that bit of steel, it was clearly oversized and it was clearly fit for purpose, but we need to, as Oliver said, we need to go the extra step and sort of, it does take a bit more effort. It really does. But that longer term vision is really important. We need to do, we need to change those habits. Um, so we, again, for Enfield, we put together a materials exchange platform, um, which is, which is now working quite well. You know, it's only just really got off the ground, um, and we're starting to get interest, but it is about the engagement. It is about, you know, sort of 
having the platform there but not showing people around the site or not showing people the materials doesn't help it doesn't change um sort of attitudes and i think we, we sort of almost need to guide people along that journey so hopefully i was on time but um, that was me thank you that was really interesting there's so much to think about and so many more questions that are certainly coming into my head uh some of them around skills and labor force um but we can talk about that at the end uh we are getting some really interesting questions coming in um and i would urge all of you to ask more questions uh you may actually surprise our speakers with uh questions that they haven't thought of before uh we are now moving on to our third speaker who is will arnold who is head of climate action at the institution of structural engineers uh not surprisingly he is a structural engineer after we've heard from uh two architects and uh i know this is all very close to his heart so will give us your presentation please hi thank you for the introduction yes um i mean i'm, I'm going to focus in on well as you can see <laughs> embodied carbon um but just to sort of echo what was said about the fact that this this is a problem that obviously goes beyond beyond carbon um, and, and you can't solve uh we, we can't look at this problem in individual buckets they're systematically linked um and and so anything we do to try and remove the carbon from our designs we also need to do that in a way that it removes other negative impacts from our design and preferably creates positive impacts in their place um, but maybe we can talk more about that in the discussion um so i, I really I'm, I'm just going to rattle through some slides about you know really big picture stuff what it means for carbon and where that leaves us as those working in the built environment. And I wanted to chuck in some stats that I always try and get into my slides just to make sure that we're all sort of aware of what we're talking about when we say one and a half, two degrees C and so on. Um, so at this point, just a reminder for most of you rather than anything else. Um, as a reminder, today we're at about one degree C above pre-industrial revolution levels. Um, so the earth on average is warmer by one degree than it was prior to us discovering coal. Um, that's an average, it's, it's higher in some parts of the world than it is in others. And what we've been talking about and what's been in the news recently has been slightly depressingly, maybe now slipping out of our grasp, um, is trying to cap global warming to one and a half degrees. But at one and a half degrees, um, the flood risk around the world doubles on average, which is still pretty dramatic. And when we're starting to say, well, that's, you know, that, that's, that as an ambition is slipping out of our grasp only doubling flood risk around the world. At two degrees, flood risk around the world more or less triples. And for those of you who are sort of keeping up to date with what the current pledges of policies are from, from the, the countries who are, who are making them, and we're on track for something near to two and a half degrees, or maybe even near to three. Um, so you can only imagine what that does to flood risk. Similarly, if you look at heat waves, um, and we've had a fair share of that in the UK in the last couple of years, at one and a half degrees global warming, you get about 700 million people, which is the population of Europe, more or less. Um, exposed to what would have been described as a once-in-a-lifetime heat wave, um, except this happens every 20 years, so four times in a lifetime. Um, again, pretty pretty drastic compared to where we're at today, and you can imagine what's going to happen on the two-degree slide. That number increases massively, so two billion people, a quarter of the population of the Earth, more than Europe, North America, South America, and Australasia combined, um, experience, experience these once-in-a-lifetime heat waves every 20 years. 
And again, at two and a half, three degrees, it just gets worse and worse. So this is really significant stuff. And these predictions that we read about and that we hear, these are predictions for the end of this century. Um, so these are the year 2100. And you can be forgiven for assuming that that's quite a long way away and affects people who we don't really know yet. But actually, if you do the maths, you realise it's quite a bit closer than we than we think. And the wake-up call for me was when my first nephew was born. This is Bobby. Um, Bobby was born at the end of 2019. And I realised that Bobby will be 80 when we enter the year 2100, which is old, but it's not that old. Probably all of you listening know somebody or have known somebody in their 80s. You probably know somebody who's around about Bobby's age. That person will still be alive when these things happen. So these are really real effects that we're talking about, and the decisions that we make in our work and the, the choices we make as to who we try and advocate for change from. Um, they'll have a real impact on these people's lives. Embodied carbon. I was asked if I could sort of touch on what it is because it's because it's you know the hot topic of debate within a bit more sort of mainstream industry at the moment. Um, for those of you who sort of come across the term and not got into depth on it, this is kind of how I go around describing this to people. You have, in the same way that you could describe the whole life of a human as having all these different aspects, they're born, they, they live, they go to college and so on and so forth, and they die at the end of life. We have the whole life of a building. So we have whole life carbon of a building, which all of the emissions put together through that building's life from inception to demolition. Embodied carbon is basically the carbon emissions related to anything you can touch. It's to do with all the materials that we use. Um, and that means getting stuff out of the ground, turning it into components and products, transporting those to site, installing them, maintaining them, um, repairing them, and at the end of life, demolishing or deconstructing them. That combined is embodied carbon. So there's embodied carbon related to the chair that you're probably sat on right now. And the reason why we call embodied, we call this embodied carbon is because the chair is the sort of embodiment of those, those carbon emissions that went out into the atmosphere. Um, embodied carbon is the sort of the partner of the, the operational carbon side of things, which is the bit we've been focusing on for quite a long time now, which of course anything you can turn on and off. Um, so power, heating, water. Um, and, and when you put those two things together, that, that more or less covers all of the emissions of, of the built environments. And it's embodied carbon that I've been talking a lot about the last few years because it's the sort of area that um, structural engineers in particular have woken up to realise it making up quite a big impact on. And in terms of scale of that impact, in terms of how the numbers look, um, if you compare this to flying to New York from London, um, probably an economy class if you're listening as an engineer, um, then, then that's in the order of magnitude of one to carbon. So if you choose to not take that flight, do a Zoom call or something and say you avoid one sort of carbon goes to the atmosphere, this distribution warehouse, fairly normal site, if you live somewhere like I do in Milton Keynes, these pop up all the time. Um, the steel frame alone for this distribution warehouse was responsible for about 5,000 tonnes of carbon being emitted into the atmosphere. That doesn't include the ground floor slab, foundations, the cladding, the racking inside of it, none of that other stuff, just that steel frame. And so that means that, of course, if we somehow could have used 20% less steel to do that, done things 20% better, whether it was 20% smaller, there's some more efficiencies in there, there's more columns, there's more design time to remove material out of it, you could have saved 1,000 tonnes of carbon. And the point I make, Time and time again, the only thing you need to remember from what I say today, if you only remember one thing, is this you know, huge orders of magnitude difference between what we can affect in our personal life and our professional life. And hopefully that's why you're listening to us today. But once you know this and you know the fact that these, these impacts through however many degrees C of warming 
are going to impact people who are alive today, you realise that it's now your job to go and find a thousand tonnes on every project. Um, the, the last thing I'd sort of say on 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 this sort of side of embodied carbon um, is I, I I'm not going to talk too much about how you go about reducing it except this one side, and this is the sort of strategy that the ISTRUCT pushes out there for its members. Um, we refer to this as our hierarchy for net zero design. And these are th these triangles are hierarchical, i.e. the bigger bit at the top will have more impact than the small bit at the bottom. And they're also sort of chronological because you can do the stuff at the top early on in the design process. The bits at the bottom can come later. It's quite hard to go in the other direction. And what you see from this, and we run training and we've written guides and blogs and stuff around this that go into more depth. What you see from this is it fundamentally comes down to the efficiency of the stuff that we use, use less stuff. And the reason why I wanted to put this in, um, and just coming back to the points that have been made about thinking beyond carbon, is that when you start to use things more efficiently, they typically also have beneficial impacts on our impacts on nature and biodiversity and pollution and waste and all that other stuff. So you have all these huge knock-on impacts. The problem with a lot of what we see at the moment in terms of innovations in materials low carbon concrete, low carbon steel, and so on and so forth, is they tackle carbon and nothing else. Um, and often not at a scale that you can actually put into a building site right now. Um, and it's the same for carbon capture. It's the same for powering things with hydrogen. They tackle carbon and they don't tackle anything else at all. And we know that all this stuff's interlinked. If it wasn't interlinked, then we wouldn't have the UN Sustainable Development Goals because they, they exist and they're so broad because you need to tackle all these things at once. Um, so, yeah, we, we advocate to use less stuff as your starting point. And as you can see from the right hand side of this, that starts with reusing what we already have, working out how you can get away with building less, um, then goes through building clever, which is typically letting the sort of engineers have a bit of a say early on as to what's efficient, um, and then sort of moving further down the hierarchy into minimizing waste and so on. Happy to talk a bit more to that later. Um, the last couple of slides I've got are really just a reminder to you all that. This is coming. Um, they're, they're, this is going to be regulated. Absolutely, 100% guarantee this will be regulated at some point in the future. It's a case of when rather than if. Um, many of you are probably aware of the work I've been leading on Part Z, which is an industry proposal um, to amend the building regulations to include whole life carbon assessments within it. Um, we're, very, we're getting quite close now to the 200 mark in terms of numbers of companies who have written in support of such regulation. And we've got household names writing about this. NatWest, Barrett Homes are all calling on government how to regulate embodied carbon. So this will happen. You know, our neighbours in our you know, European countries such as Denmark, Netherlands, France, Sweden um, are moving to do this stuff. We will follow this case of when rather than if. We even we have an MP um, who's taking this to a private reading in the Commons uh, a week on Friday to get this debated in the chamber, um, which is going to put further pressure on the relevant departments to take this take this forward. I don't, don't think this will have ever been debated in the Commons before. So this is only going to move in one direction. Um, and in the meantime, whilst we're waiting for it to be fully legislated, we've got hundreds and hundreds of volunteers across the industry work on the writing of a zero carbon buildings standard, um, which will effectively set out the limits for embodied carbon, operational carbon, minimum targets for on-site renewables, things like that, that you have to comply with to be able to say that you have a net zero building. And the reason we want to do this, of course, is because it enables clients to specify a building to achieve net zero in accordance with the standard. 
which means that we've got a sort of level playing field that we're all working to um, to, to sort of compare compare our work to each other. And that will be really important because that will help finance flow in the right direction in the built environment. Um, and we can do all of that voluntarily and that will start to get things moving at greater speed. And we, you know, I'm indebted to the work that Nitesh and others did in the at the end of last year to try and sort of prove the need for this kind of thing because it's really helped us kick this off in the right direction. Um, and then my very, very last slide on sort of standards and the fact this is coming is just to point out that the Future Homes Hub um, who are looking after the house building industry, which is often perceived as you know, maybe being slightly slower to act on this stuff and slightly more averse to regulation than some of the, the sort of commercial sector. Um, even they are calling for this sort of work to come now. There's a, um, a route map that's being published by them, which will be a route map to net zero, and that's due to come out within the next month or so. Um, my understanding is it could be pretty well aligned with those other slides that I've just put up around net zero and so on. So, you know, this is going to enter every walk of construction in this case of when rather than if. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, that was really clear, really important. And again, a lot to think about in terms of obviously how we are going to change all our approaches. And I think it's really interesting you talk about using less stuff. Um, but obviously, we do need to use some stuff and the stuff we use needs to be the right stuff uh, and I th I know that there is this understanding that everything has to go from the big global picture down to uh, each individual uh, manufacturer and supplier um, they need to be addressing these things and that's where our final speaker comes in um, who is Gemma Eisen who is Sustainability Manager at Keystone Group, and I know has been looking at this across all of the organisation's operations. So before I ask Gem, um, Gemma to start, I just remind everybody, please do send in your questions because after Gemma, we will be having our discussion. Thank you. Am I still muted? Does no, you're good. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much for the intro there. I just wait till my slides pop up. Thank you for sharing those. Yeah, so it's really interesting for me so far, especially to listen to those first three speakers. So thank you to everybody. Um, as Ruth mentioned there, I'm the sustainability manager for the Keystone Group. So we, of course, are a manufacturer to the industry and we are affected by everything that's been raised so far in today's conversation and the key influences that actually drive us and drive our innovations around all of our products. So across the group, we do pride ourselves on the innovation and technical expertise we have in-house, but we are influenced by the people that purchase our products and also that specify our products. So how can we meet your demands and what are you predominantly holding most weight on when it comes to your product selection? Can't click my slide. Next, got you, okay. Technical blip over, hopefully so. So yeah, you can see from the slide here, so where we are, 
kind of frequently trying to meet the demands of specifiers and our customers. We have had to respond to uh, specifiers taking that fabric first approach initially. So how can we supply products that meet a set criteria that they might be working to? In terms of EPDs, um, so environmental product declarations, we know as a manufacturer that the life cycle assessments for product specific data will eventually become compulsory, which is why a number of our brands have already got them in place for a range of their products, or they're currently carrying out the processes in order to get these over the line. Uh, we recognize that as a manufacturer, anything that we actually supply to a project will contribute to the overall environmental impact. So our efforts are focused around Firstly, reducing this. So how can we make it easier for our customers to make responsible sourcing decisions? So for us, using recycled and also recyclable materials, as well as actually sustainably manufacturing them in-house. So how can we actually control this by doing our bit on the operation side of things, but then also providing a product that we have the full transparency of that lifecycle data for our customers. We're also seeing increasingly extensive supplier questionnaires. So um, I was actually on the phone to somebody this morning from the BMF group who said, you know, we've got a range of merchants in our group and they're all sending out their own questionnaires, some of them filled with like up to 100 questions or more how can we try and actually consolidate those questions and keep them consistent across the industry because we're all asking for the same answers and we all need the same amount of information for us to actually take this to use and move it forward ultimately uh, we're also very interested as a manufacturer what our top level goals are have we signed up to any initiatives are we actually um, validating any of our goals to any scientifically backed initiatives like the science-based targets. Uh, at the Keystone Group, we have actually publicly declared our commitment to achieve the net zero goal by 2050. And all of these key topics and buzzwords are just becoming more and more prominent across these areas. So what... Oh impact of COP26, what did this have? I'm not doing very well with my slides on this section. Um, so I actually shared this quote quite recently as one of the main outcomes or the key outcome from the UK COP26 presidency was um, the hope to keep alive the 1.5 degree scenario. So however, it was also clearly stated that this will only be achieved if every country actually delivers on what they have pledged. So the main four areas covered mitigation, adaption, finance and collaboration, as anybody else would know who's already read over that specific topic. Again, can't change my slide, don't know why I'm struggling. Thank you very much. I might just ask you to do that. I'll just go next slide, please. Um, as we already know, there was kind of a range of high-level outcomes as well from COP26 primarily, focusing on a range of topics, everything from uh, net zero emission vehicles to the global forest finance statement and pledge. One I've just picked out today is the new emission 
new mission of innovation missions statement. So the focus of this particular statement is around the steel and cement industries. So very relevant for the construction sector and predominantly at the Keystone Group with the decarbonisation of the steel industry actually holding huge control over our progress. This is massive and topical for us. Uh, the first mission newsletter was actually released last month uh, to state that the first project which stated the net zero industry mission was officially launched at the recent Global Clean Action Energy Forum in Pittsburgh on the 23rd of September with the goal to catalyze the development and demonstration of cost competitive solutions to create a net zero industry's future. The Net Zero Industries mission was to showcase at least 50 large-scale demonstration projects by 2030. This is set to decarbonise intensive industries such as the steel, cement and chemicals to facilitate full decarbonisation of the industry across regions around the world by 2050. So they have released this roadmap towards net zero industries, which looks into technological options for the decarbonisation of energy intensive industries. But linking to a point that Oliver made earlier on, the pledge has already been made, the commitments there. It is more about the behaviours that we need to change now across the industry. Next slide, please. Thank you. So the next question on the agenda was, do we fully understand the embodied carbon and how we're going to tackle it? So Will shared um, an excellent slide on the previous presentation to clearly break down the embodied carbon within the whole life carbon aspect. The three images I've chosen to share with you today are examples of projects that IG Masonry support, so part of the Keystone Group, IG Masonry support have been heavily involved in during the actual rejuvenation of the facade. So also linking to a point that Nitesh made in his presentation about the circular economy. And also there is an example of a project where you were reusing brick and recanning brick facades. These are successful examples of where we've been able to use the existing structure of these particular projects and then just effectively replan and reface the facade with our innovation and with our solutions that we provide to the industry. So three successful projects there where we've attempted to keep the embodied carbon down within each project. So uh, with the embodied carbon of any new project being two thirds down to the existing structure, it's great to see that there's already schemes out there that are focusing on using that existing structure where possible. And it's something that we're very keen to be involved with across the Keystone Group to see where we can play our part in supplying these types of projects. But quite rightly, if we are going to tackle embodied carbon, we need to know how we're going to measure it, exactly understand is there a consistent clear measuring process? And it is essential for us to understand what is important as well at the beginning of that project, what they're looking at, their intention of measuring the embodied carbon is. So is it the embodied carbon or is it more the operational carbon? Next slide, please. So across the Keystone Group highlighted this earlier on as well, that we've already got our EPDs over the line 
for RGMA's support, very closely there with Keyfix, another subsidiary to the group. So we're exploring this with Lintels as well. So it's something that we're very passionate about to make sure that we're providing as much data as we can about the products that we are providing to the industry. So for any projects that you might be working on where you are using a carbon calculator to assess that overall impact well in advance, we want to be able to provide the product-specific data for those schemes. Next slide, please. Are current regulations going far enough? So next slide, please. I feel like it's already been touched on already today um, from what Will mentioned as well just a moment ago with the push to get Part Z over the line. Um, we all are waiting for the building regulations to really begin to factor in sustainable development to be embedded within their guidance. So at the moment, as there are kind of no restrictions for building or producing a highly carbon intensive scheme, any low environmental impact briefs can mostly be either client led, but sometimes this, these can also be almost like a tick box exercise as well, which is what we do not want to encourage whatsoever. As a manufacturer asking questions back to specifiers and customers, um, we see our EPD development as being highly important as it's recognised as one of the main focus of the, although it isn't recognised at the moment as being something everybody is focusing on, it is more the operational effects people are looking to measure at this stage. We've seen the release of a few examples I have on screen at the moment of the 10 point plan and the building back greener strategy but nothing yet has been translated into any strict building regulations that are going to make a significant change in the near future. Next, please. Next slide. It's also clear to see from experts' perspectives across the industry who also feel strongly around the regulations. So for building regulations changing continuously as a result of any fire and safety regs that might have been improved over the times, we also need to adapt that with climate change within our recent times as well. Um, so again, linking to one of the highlights you just made there, Will, on how we actually deliver this. There's always that drive for um, a journal or a guidance that we, did you call it your net zero um, map or strategy for us to follow that's something that is crying out for across the industry and can clearly be seen from the conversations we're having today and any activities online as well next slide please what do specifiers and manufacturers need to do to drive change so if we continue to design and to build ignorantly this is going to have naturally increased detrimental effects it's already been seen as a consequence of how we have been building for centuries without having the knowledge or the ability to be mindful of all the repercussions and these effects. The main things that we can do is not be afraid to ask questions when we get involved in any project, just actually questioning why we might be specifying this system, why we're using this system, thinking more specifically around the design and the details of that project and are we actually building for it to be fit for purpose? 
or really thinking about the overall impact that using that product or that material or that system might have. We're probably all very familiar with this image of the Barrett's Z house. So one day, you know, in a dream world, we'll perhaps all be living in a home that's built by Barrett's. But the reality is we are not there yet and it's not coming anytime soon. So when we are getting involved in any projects, it is a cultural shift and also behavioural change we'll have to start making to actually start designing better from the outset to deliver on a far more sustainable future. Next slide, please. So here is just kind of a whistle-stop sustainability timeline across the Keystone Group. So we have a range of brands supplying a range of products to the construction industry. And it's really hugely important for us to kind of focus on all of those areas across our business operations. And it was also a massive success for us that before we really had a sustainability hat on our heads, that actually we'd made some positive changes across our business that had already proven to make huge um, positive impacts in this particular area. So even going back to 2013, when we achieved our first ISO environmental standard at the Keystone Group, only since then have we been taking more and more positive changes and positive steps towards decarbonizing our business operations, becoming more knowledgeable in these areas as well by speaking to our customers, our specifiers, and just generally collaborating with the industry. So by improving those conversations has helped us to actually make significant changes that we only expect to accelerate in future. Thank you. I don't know if I've got another slide, have I? No. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, and I think that's really interesting to see how seriously uh, you are tackling it and you know, pro not sitting still and every year there's another target and another goal. Um, we are now in the position where we can have a discussion. Uh, we've got some interesting questions that have been set, sent in and I think there are all sorts of things that we can discuss amongst ourselves as well. Um, there was mention of offsetting um, earlier on. I think it was from Mitesh saying, well, really, we should be, be doing better than having to offset the carbon that's in our buildings. Um, but we've had a question in saying, if we look forward to 2050, do you think it's realistic that the industry can achieve net zero without the use of carbon offset initiatives? And the secondary part of that is, it seems to be some doubt that carbon offsets are as effective as advertised. So I think that's a question saying, can we manage without them? And secondly, um, if we do need to offset, how do we actually choose um, offsets that are effective? Uh, Oliver, I'm going to come to you first. Cheers, Ruth. Um, I, so I've got mixed mixed feelings about offsets. Um, I think they're a, they're a necessity at this moment in time. Um, what I think's what I think's really really troublesome and problematic about them is that they take we've got so little time, we've got so little resource, we've got so little money to achieve what we need to achieve. I think that they take our attention away, and this, the conversation around offsets often takes our attention away from what we need to be focusing on, which is incremental delivery of, of more efficient buildings, 
and um, an incremental reduction in the embodied carbon and, and, a, and a wider holistic development of our view of sustainability on projects moving forward. Um, you know, I feel like I've been having the same conversation for five years around quite a lot of these topics. Um, what, one of the things that I think is totally under-recognized about offsets is the potential that if we just flip the conversation and stop focusing, because it is the Wild West at the minute, you know, they are astronomically unreliable in a lot of instances. However, there's a marketplace there, there's a global marketplace that's, that's, that's alive in the US. If we start to flip that conversation and, and use it to the advantage, and there's a lever um, in the in the carbon discussion, and and not seeing carbon as a problem, but seeing it as a as, as an incredibly valuable resource, um, then it starts to become much more interesting and, and and a lever that we could use as an industry. So I think there's an opportunity there that isn't being realised around offsets. Um, it is a bit like the Wild West at the moment, and I do agree with those those comments. There's a lot of people, uh, including us, with other partners like Siemens looking at how do we use blockchain and, and distributed ledger technology to start to develop a, a verifiable carbon credits. Um, so it's changing. It's like kind of necessary at the minute. I don't like them, but maybe we need to reframe them and think about them as, a, as part of the solution moving forward if we can build a better economy and economic model around them. Thank you. Well, I think I'm seeing some nods, and I think since one of your points was that we talk about offsets too much. Um, I think perhaps uh, we'll move on to another question rather than getting dug into them. Uh, we've had a question here about embodied carbon and how to limit it. And we also hear about sequestered carbon, which we hear is a positive. What is the precise difference and how as architects should we approach this apparent potential confusion? Now, I know because I've been quite involved with um, sort of aspects of the timber world, that there are all these arguments about sequestered carbon and then there's how you calculate it um, at the end of life and where the carbon goes, etc. Um, and I know also that I have seen one or two rather disastrous projects where they've actually stuck extra wood in the project because that sequesters more carbon and that must make them better. And obviously sticking extra anything in is disastrous. Um, I think I'm going to go to Will on this. Thanks, I was hoping you would because I'm bursting to talk about this. Um, there's a really nice quote by a lady called Jane Anderson, who's um, the sort of I don't know, god of uh, LCA and EPDs in the UK, which is that we need more buildings in timber, not more timber in buildings. And that's kind of exactly to your point, Ruth, which is that if, if you just chop down all the forests in the world and put them in a basement somewhere, that's clearly not going to solve the environmental crisis. So it can't make sense. We just need to use wood willy nilly. So you'd silly treat it as a valuable resource. Um, to to answer the question specifically about the sort of difference um, and, and what sequestration means and what it is, basically sequestration is the process by which carbon dioxide gets dragged out of the atmosphere and stored in something, such as in a tree through photosynthesis. Um, and we then what it's stored as we refer to as biogenic carbon. So when you turn um, a tree into a timber beam, there are some emissions related with that process because you typically chop down a tree with a chainsaw powered by petrol, um, stick it on the back of a logging truck powered by diesel, drive it somewhere, chop it up into smaller bits, dry it out and so on. All of that stuff releases um, greenhouse gases. So there are emissions related to that process. But at the end of it, you've got a piece of something 
that has still got that biogenic carbon within it. And if we build buildings out of timber, the benefits of that is that we, we, we've taken that biogenic carbon that's been locked away by those trees and we're storing it somewhere for the life of that building. And that's a good thing because that allows you to plant more trees on the piece of land and drag more carbon out of the atmosphere. Now there's a sort of time period bit to this. It takes time for a tree to grow and so on. Um, but there, there's this fundamental sort of, you, you're using buildings as a carbon bank, if you like. You're putting carbon into that bank um, and allowing you to sequester some more. So that, that's a good thing. But what we have to recognise is that there are those emissions related to doing that. Um, and we need to minimise those, which is why inefficient use of timber isn't going to be very helpful to us. Um, but, 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 but using it properly in the right circumstances, in situations where you don't end up releasing more carbon into the atmosphere as a result of the side of it, um, plus you get the benefit of storing it away long term, I think is a, yeah, is a good place to start for most most buildings we work on. That's that's really clear. Um, the place where I get confused is in the sort of whole life carbon calculation, where as mm. far as I understand it, you have to say that at the end of the building's life, you are going to be re-releasing that carbon. And that you have to say that even if you take that wood and put it into another building, because otherwise yeah. you're in danger of double accounting, aren't you? That's so, a bit so, yeah. me. So, so there's this accounting issue, and whole life carbon accounting is exactly that. And and you you view the carbon of a project within the boundaries of that project and how it comes in and goes out of there. And in terms of you know, there's there's some terminology differences. And you would say that if you build a new building out of the timber, it gets reused. You transfer that carbon across instead of emitting it to the atmosphere. But in effect, it counts the numbers are added up the same way. Um, and I think what this what this demonstrates is that what is a clear difference between those the numbers alone won't tell you it and that's why it's important that people work to get their head around how these numbers work and when they're describing stuff to their clients um, they don't just give them some numbers on a page and tell them to pick the lowest number they actually explain what this stuff means because when you speak to people about this as a topic they know instinctively that it's probably better to reuse that timber than to send it off to be burnt um, clearly that, that that would be a good thing to do regardless of what those numbers tell you. So I think we know what the answer is. We just have to be careful not to get confused by a big complicated spreadsheet of numbers. I think Oliver wants to come in. I just want to throw a quick spanner in the works because um, I don't know the answer to this. It's more of a provocation. The the I, I think we're sleepwalking into a, a wider set of problems here around uh, whole life cycle analysis and carbon accounting because there's a notional um, the notional view that I keep hearing reiterated time and time again that they're building as a lifespan of 60 years. And in, in reality, it's, that's nonsense. Um, so if, if we are accounting to 60 years, we're, we're fundamentally affecting an awful lot of future decisions that are being made, finance on the project, um, when we release carbon credits, when will carbon that's currently locked in or planned to be released from a building, actually be planned released or released from them there's a series of decisions that we're making that we, i don't think we fully understand the intent the unintended consequences of at this moment in time because we've only got notional guidelines around building lifespan um, that i don't think are at all accurately reflective of how long buildings live um, so I, that's, i'm more one more one just to throw into the mix to be honest 
that's really interesting. And now I've got a couple of questions that have come in from Milda Klimanskite, I think. Anyway, she's interesting, and I'm assuming she's a she, um, because uh, Milda is a student, and of course it's the students of today who are going to be designing and constructing the buildings of tomorrow. And the two questions from Milda, one is about being taught sustainability on my architectural technology course, but I'm interested to know if there are any additional programmes for students to prepare them for when they join the industry. And I, as I know, there can be a lot of pushback with small and medium practices or companies in real life. And as a rider, Milda has asked, I'm also interested in discussing more about how cost often is prioritised over sustainability. As a student, I would like to know if that's re the reality of the industry once I join it. Will I have to fight for my projects to be environmentally co conscious? Now, somebody uh, from Keystone's very kindly come in and said that Gemma does a CPD on uh, sustainability. And I'm sure there are lots of individual CPDs around which are really useful because after all this, when people are designing, they're going to have to specify and they need to know to make the right choices. But in the broader sense, I guess the two questions there are, how how good do we feel the education is uh, that students are getting now to prepare them for this world, and how are they going? How much kickback are they going to get when they actually go out into into practice or into business? Uh, I'm going to go to Nitesh because we haven't talked for a while. Thanks, Ruth, um, and and really interesting to to hear your questions, Milda. Um, I don't think, and having taught in universities, um, taught architecture or tutored um, students, there isn't enough education around sustainability. Um, so I know that, um, and and I sort of um, value you know a bit more effort being put into uh, universities. Um, maybe through the RIBA, you know, we can sort of help to, to push that um, through universities. Um, but yeah, you're right. You know that I think there is an issue, and I don't, I don't want you to be um, um, to, to have the opinion that it's easy to to sort of start designing sustainability and and sort of put you put your ideas forward because, um, as Oliver said, it is, you know, it, it does take more effort. You know, do, you do need to think about the R and D and the sort of innovation process that you're going through. Um, I think we'd all agree, you know, those of us that have done things, that it's so much more valuable. You get so much more back um, in terms of having done that, having incorporated hemp, you know, in my projects for the first time um, was amazing. You know, it really was. It's really, you know, precious. Um, but it does require, and, and this is why on most of my projects, whether I'm dealing with company strategy um, or, or looking at specific materials, um, or projects, I do find that I end up putting a business case forward um, to justify it because, you know, whether you're talking to a, another architect, a designer, a contractor, or a client, they all have different levers. And it's you, you need to understand what those levers are. Um, so yes, unfortunately, there is a bit of education that we need to do to the industry generally. Um, and I think, as Ruth said, the, the students of today are the ones that 
need to be pushing for this as well. And I know, you know, having had a, had a sort of background in, in corporate, in a corporate world, it is the younger generation that come through that were my advocates, sort of that I actually used to sort of say, look, this is this this is the future. This is what they want to do. You know, it's really important to them. Yeah, it's quite interesting, Gemma. I know that you sort of come through um, through a career at Keystone, and I think looking around, and I'm not going to ask the detailed question, but um, I suspect you're the youngest person in this session. And I just wondered, did you feel when you came into um, the industry, and obviously? I'm not looking at sort of saying, oh, what they did right and what they did wrong there. Did you come in and were you pushing in this role? Were you were you pushing one hopes towards an open door, but feeling that when you came in and there were older and more established people that you had something specific to contribute? I think when I joined the industry, it was just more about taking it all in, taking it all in from every angle, and also taking on board the projects and the perhaps uh, things I was asked to do that I might not have enjoyed so much because it was more about understanding where I can add most value and what I enjoyed the most. And that led me to new opportunities within the business. And I was very fortunate to be on a graduate program with Keystone. So it did move me around the different brands um, in a range of areas as well. So I worked in kind of the commercial side of things from marketing and sales and then also operations as well for one of the businesses and then that led me into specification and now the world of sustainability and it's kind of at every opportunity I've had within the Keystone group just kind of made the most out of the experience it was providing me and may ask any questions so I just was a bit like a sponge took it all on board and continued to kind of broaden my knowledge and then I noticed that kind of the more questions I had to my uh, to my managers and my superiors they kind of turned them back on me and said well go and find out and it's that's your next task that's your next project so we actually released um a product called Boss A1 to the market a few years back at IG Race Support, and I was tasked with making it a carbon neutral product before it was released to the market. So that kind of opened my world to sustainability, the different terminologies, and then it just became very evident how ambiguous that area was and recognising the importance of it and that it was only going to gain momentum from you know that first task I had back in 2020. And since then, it's just had such a huge um, impact across the entire group and we've all learned so much as we've gone on and I feel like we're all still learning in a lot of areas we're still in our infancy stages um, so despite my experience or inexperience compared to other members on the call or any attendees today we're all kind of learning together on a similar level when it comes to future innovations and how we should build smarter and cleaner for the future. That's really inspirational. Thank you. I wanted to talk about something else, which is to do with skills. And I, you know, Nitesh, you were talking about this really fantastic thing of, you know, mining buildings, looking at what you can reuse, getting those bricks out, etc. And I was just thinking about the fact that when you look at maybe another approach, maybe it's the same approach, but people who talk about um, MMC and off-site construction talk about um, you know not only making things safer and cleaner and more efficient but addressing the lack of sort of the skills in the industry and I 
always look at those buildings. I think it's fantastic that you're reusing things, but someone's taking those bricks apart and scraping bits off them. And it just seems to me as if it's fantastically labour intensive, you know, in a country where we can't find people to pick fruit. And I'm sure that the contractors don't want to pay an absolute fortune to all the people doing that. And I wonder, I mean, you know, we talked about scalability before, and I wonder how scalable that is in terms of the workforce we have available. Really interesting question, Ruth. Um, and I find it quite ironic, actually, that, you know, um, the default position for, and I, I used to be a contractor, I mean, I worked for, you know, a major contractor for 10 years. Um, so I know through experience that things can be done if there's a will to do it. Um, but in my current role, when I'm advising different contractors to do something or, you know, speaking to demolition contractors, I do face a lot of resistance. And it's really strange. Um, so, for example, the, the 18,000 bricks that we, we, we recovered, the initial, um, the, the initial fallback on that was, oh, no, we can't do it because it's in cement mortar. And, and yet we got 18,000 bricks from a relatively small building. And it was only because those skills are there. It's just that the contractors immediate response is it's too difficult but actually it, it didn't look that difficult okay there were there were people working um and I, I could see that there was sort of a team of five to six people um probably spending about a week doing it but actually in the large scheme of things that was that was really worth it but the default position was it's too difficult and then also on on a sort of large set of uh, industrial buildings we're trying to again, put the business case forward for reuse of steel. Um, and, you know, internally, these buildings have barely been touched. They've been there for sort of nearly 50 years. Um, and I'm sort of promoting that actually they, they get disassembled, um, then get tested, you know, refurbished so that we can use those steels again, because they're perfectly fine. They really are. And yet I, I'm getting a lot of resistance from the manufacturers, even though I'm saying that actually, you know, what you're going to do is you're going to send that material to scrap. So that steel will go to scrap or get recycled uh, and repurposed in the business as usual way. But actually, I can guarantee, and I've set up the agreements, I can guarantee that the demolition contractor will get 20, 25% extra fees for recovering that, that, that steel and taking it to the yard uh, for Cleveland Steel, for example. Um, and then Cleveland Steel, um, in this case, would then refurbish those pieces of steel and sell it back to Enfield or sell it back to a, a sort of potential client that wants it, again, at a cheaper rate than buying virgin steel again. So I can see that there's a win-win. And yet it, it, I struggle to comprehend why it's still so difficult. Well, I know Oliver wants to come back, but Will's just put his hand up, which is great, because... I wanted to ask you the question because one of the problems is, isn't it that it's really, you may know in your gut that that steel will do the job, but actually proving it and proving it that it meets design codes and so on can be a real headache. So, um, yeah, I wanted to come in because, you know, this is a structural, this is an area that structural engineers should yeah. be going to be about because, you know, we have a lot to offer here. 
we're, um, we've been writing a guide on this over the last year um, that we're due to release uh, the end of December, I think, which will be called something like Circular Economy and Reuse Guidance for Designers, written for structural engineers, but, you know, in kind of plain English in the hope that architects and others can find it useful too. Um, and the thing I've learned as we've been doing that is that we're at very different stages for different materials as mm -hmm. to uh, the, the possibilities for reuse. And steel is right at the front of this. Um, there are developers in central London right now who are trying to get reused steel elements in on their jobs. Um, I think Holbin Gardens is a project where they just built a sort of extra uh, level on top of the roof of an existing building and about half the steel for that was reused sections from a different job that the client owned. And I'm, I know that the, the lead author of our guide is currently working on trying to get about 700 tonnes of steel reused on a project in the, in the central London, which is pretty game-changing stuff. Um, in terms of reusing steel, actually, if you're taking apart a steel frame that's post, I think, 1970s construction, then because the testing regime that happened to get that steel certified in the first place is pretty similar to what we have today, it's actually technically very straightforward to do it. You've got to do some testing. You're also going to go and measure the stuff so you know what you've got. Um, but there's no real technical barriers to it. Um, you need to you need to make sure you, you know, you're discarding anything that's been damaged, of course. Um, and and there are demolition contractors who are moving their business model towards deconstruction already. So McGee's um, have been like pushing on this for a couple of years now. You know, how do we take apart the steel frame? They don't unbolt it. They chop, the, they chop the beam off very near to the connections because it's just quicker and easier, but you can save 90% of the length of it. You put it on the back of a truck, you drive it away, you clean it off, clean off the paint, repaint it, bring it back in. So the, the barriers, I think, are more to do with um, as logistical issues. Mm -hmm. Who's going to keep hold of this stuff in the meantime? There's um, the sort of buying and selling side of things. You know, If you imagine eBay, except you, you didn't actually need the thing you were about to buy off eBay for another nine months. Um, yeah. Do you want to send that money to the person selling it now? Where are you going to put it in the meantime? There's all of these sorts of things, but they are being overcome on some sort of key projects today. And I think we're just going to see more and more of this over the next few years. Because it's quite interesting also, if I go on eBay and I want to buy a chair for my desk, I might not end up with exactly the chair that I thought I wanted first of all, yeah. um, but it might do the job. And presumably then that's a design question, isn't it? Because you start designing with the steel that's available rather than with the sort of absolutely pure design. I'm going to move on to Oliver because I know he's got things to say. We've probably moved on a long way from when he wanted to speak, but I'm sure he's got things to put into this, Oliver. No, I'll rattle through them, Ruth, thank you. The, um, in fact, they're all kind of joined up. So in response to Milda and Nitesh's comments around how hard this is to get done, it's more a response to Milda and a recognition of Nitesh's comments. You'd be fighting every day. Um, there, there is no easy ride in getting this done. We have just published a, a study for Scottish Government on retrofit comparisons for schools um, with a view that we don't, can't afford to replace them all, so let's retrofit them all. Um, it, that clearly, clearly shows that retrofit is a preferred option if we're looking at reducing embodied carbon, but actually is probably no more beneficial in terms of cost or program um, over the new build comparison. That was an absolute struggle to get to the table with friends. So that was a friendly wider design team. That was people that we work with every day. And the individual personal responses on every level of this are, it's not how we usually do it. 
and it's and that's and that's what we're fighting every day. So, and I understand that's not how we usually do, it, but that's how we're doing it this time. And it's just having a bit of conviction, a bit of grit, and I think we need it at every level, just to say, no, we're going to do it differently this time, and this is how we're going to do it. The just in response to the the steel and moving on to the circular economy piece that we talked about, I I actually think a lot of this is going to be predetermined for us. Um, we've with with this new carbon validation platform that we've been looking at, a huge mechanism for that. And I, I totally agree with Will. Steel is, is well ahead of the game. Um, you know, we work quite a lot with Celsius Steel as the UK's only electric arc furnace. Um, however, the, the EU carbon border adjustment mechanism for bringing goods into Europe, uh, in the European Union, is, is definitely going to have an impact on the UK in some way, shape or form in how we import steel. Um, you know, the, the, that whole mechanism is, is is basically about not importing cheap steel because it's got a much higher carbon footprint and that will have an impact on the markets for for steel now what it'll do with our market i don't know but we need to be recovering much more of, of our own steel it'd be interesting to see what prices do with recovered steel um, in comparison to low carbon uh, high carbon imported steel so we'll, you know that it's definitely a space to watch but it a lot of it is is out of our hands. We've just got to make good decisions with the information that we've got at the right time. I wanted to ask you as well, uh, when you were talking about sort of using um, algae, I think it was, to clean the air and things in buildings. Mm. Now, I mean, I know that um, nobody expects the M&E in a building to last for the whole lifespan of the building. But how do you convince people or insurers or whatever that not only does this work today, but how, what is its lifespan when, you know, it's the old thing, we want to innovate, but only with tried and tested products. I guess uh, the key the key for me particularly, and this is the best thing about the microbiology and the marine biology view, is it's all about just replacing everything bef without replacing the system. So when we're developing new chemical compounds to go into to make bioplastics with, with the guys in, in Sydney, they're not changing the, the industry. The change in the yeah. chemical, the, the making the same chemical just in a different way um, that is carbon neutral, so it has no reliance on on any fossil based processes. And I guess the same goes for buildings. If we're going to introduce a bioreactor into a building, it's the same MNE that runs throughout the building, except we'll probably have a much we'll save money on how we have to reheat and recirculate and clean and filter the air because we use we're just plugging on in very simple terms a different box now the interesting thing there is it starts to become a living building in the fact that you can't just turn it on and off you know that thing has to run because it's growing a living organism and and that then creates its own economy around that so you know it's a it, it's a it's an incredibly interesting model and there's so many of these interesting new models that are starting to come to fruition in the construction sector and in the built environment you know, local energy microgrids you know, all of these things around people trading energy about using blockchain for these things. We just have to try and help these things and support them to get to a level where they're a good proof of concept scale because not many people want to see these things succeed despite national rhetoric. You know, the government doesn't really want us to decentralize our energy provision from a national grid because it'll already destabilize existing energy markets further. We need to move to a, a situation where we're taking lead from Germany and others who've got a really phenomenal um, track record with just having entire communities that are energy resilient and generate their own their their own power. Um, 
just now might not be the best time to be doing all this and shaking it all up in a world where absolutely everything is up in the air in terms of global markets. Or maybe it is, I don't know. That's pretty much brought us to the end of time. I just wonder if any of our other speakers are burning to say something brief before we wind it up. No, you've exhausted it. Yes. Well, I, I mean, I just, I just like to reiterate, you know, two real key points that have jumped out for me on, on the discussion today. One is urgency in the sense of, you know, we we need to act faster at this stuff. If you look at the IPCC's sort of graphs that show what carbon emissions have been doing for the last 40, 50 years versus what they need to do yeah. over the next twenty-seven, which is all we have left to twenty-fifty. It's a complete U-turn in the way we do things, which can only be achieved through a complete transformation in the way we do stuff. So that doesn't mean a sort of 10% lower carbon solution every time. It's got to be much bigger than that. Um, and the other thing that's really struck me is the need to just think so much broader on a sort of systems level um, about, you know, not just about thinking beyond calm, but thinking beyond your own discipline and your own comfort zone. You can, we can't achieve this by people working in silos chipping away at a bit of carbon on their own bit. There's got to be bigger, more holistic thinking. And that requires us to fundamentally talk to each other more, I think. Well, well, we've all been talking to each other today, which I think has been fantastically valuable. Um, I certainly really enjoyed it and learned a lot. I hope uh, you people have learned from each other. And I hope that all these people attending have learned a lot. Um, I thank all of you for being here. Uh, I thank you very much for the questions that you sent in. Um, and more than anything, uh, thank you to uh, Keystone and thank you to all our speakers. And we'll see you again at another event. Thank you very much. Bye.